Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. All right, Carol Fabrizio, thank you for joining me today. Of course, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm very excited because I recently spoke to your lovely wife, Jill, and now I get to speak to you so we can talk about a few different things from two different perspectives and also mm-hmm. learn more about your incredible background as you guys are both awesome badasses. Thanks, Mike. So Carol, you are currently Chief Communications and Marketing Officer at USAM Gymnastics, which sounds like a pretty busy role these days. Yeah. And you've had an incredible background to get here that I'd love to dive into. When you were living in Denver and when we met, you were working for Vail Resorts, running, mm-hmm. ultimately running communications and marketing for them on their executive team. So just to start out, what made you want to jump into a big publicly traded resort company <laughs> to a storied but embattled uh, organization like USA Gymnastics? Yeah, great question. So that last move was really about mission for me. So I I love Vail Resorts. I had such a great experience there. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to dig into that and talk about it a little bit. But for me, communications, uh, it, since it's not my background, it's something that I learned in the professional world. It really all came down to reputation and being authentic in what you're communicating, right? So when I got the call from a recruiter about the role, my first reaction was actually like, no way. I'm not, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. And, and the recruiter said like, I think, I don't know. I think you'd actually be interested if you come and talk to their team. And I did, and I didn't hold anything back in the sense that I said like, listen, I want to do this, but my goal is to have authentic culture change. And then I just get to communicate that and find the best way to say it. But I am not here for window dressing or whitewashing or making things just appear shiny. And uh, I really thought that I wouldn't get a call back because that's about as honest as a, as a PR person can get. And then I did. And then I, I realized that that's exactly what they're trying to do. You know, there's a long past of, of issues and subcultures in the sport that they're actively trying to change. And it's a small organization, right? There's less than 50 people who are trying to change the culture of hundreds of thousands in a sport. But everybody who I work with there, the the six women on the executive team are all there for the right reasons. And so for me, as scary as that was to make that jump, I really thought of the the man in the arena quote, right? Like, am I going to get in there and try to make it better? Or am I going to point from the outside? And so I jumped in. That's awesome. And that was a year and a half ago now? Yeah, yeah. Just a little over a year ago. How's that experience uh, been thus far? I won't say it's easy, but I will say it's definitely worth the battle. And it's especially like for so many people who have been affected by the organization or who have been part of the organization's past or been hurt by the organization. I'm not the martyr here, right? People have gone through much, much harder than what we're dealing with. And, and so while it's not easy, it's definitely worth it. There's so many deserving people in the sport who need us to revive the organization and and this kind of subculture that needs revision. And so I think the hardest part is really that so many people that are there now are new. So we have like over 50% of staff has just been hired in the last few years. And it is a small group trying to change the culture and the policies and everything across the entire sport. And that's, you know, that's a lot of stones to overturn, a lot of files to dig into and figure out. And so there's just a lot to learn for for all the newbies. Interesting. I mean, one of my, as an outsider, sort of just following along with the headlines and reading a bit on the subject, it seems like one of the reasons there might be all new people is because the the old guard kind of continued to double down on maybe some worldviews or outlooks that that weren't weren't serving people or were actively harming people. And they've gotten repeatedly called out by their athletes, right? Yeah, no, that's true. And there was a kind of a long culture or expectation that it was not okay to speak out and speak up about those things. And so we're trying to actively 
push that athletes can and should speak up, even if it's against us and what we're doing now. That kind of discourse is necessary. We have to create an environment where people feel that they can speak up and that won't be retaliated against or punished in any way. Because so sometimes people think like that's that's the opposite of what the PR person should be saying. We need to like watch the message and do all that. And I think that's the opposite, right? I think right now it is encouraging as much speaking up as we can on any topic, including one that may sound bad or, or critical of us. It sounds like in many cases you have your, your work cut out for you there, but absolutely the right, right person for the job. It's an interesting situation because it's kind of a, in some ways it seems like a turnaround deal, or at least in the private sector, you'd call it a turnaround potentially, but USA Gymnastics had a very successful history. And I think I was reading the U.S. team hasn't lost a team event in something like 10 years. So there's been a tremendous amount of success on the field, so to speak, but it's been yeah. the the organizational and culture aspects of things that's, that have really needed to change. How do you think about balancing yeah. continued success with making these shifts? It's interesting because I think one of the one of the shifts we're trying to make is that it's not really success unless it's success at all levels, right? So unless we are holistically developing athletes, unless they feel safe, then success in the way of sponsors or medals don't actually matter. It's not real success unless those other things are also true. So one of the things that we talked about this summer in coming to our mission statement, our new mission was really what is, was the most important to us. And so our mission to build a culture and community of health, safety, and excellence, right? Where athletes can thrive in sport and in life. We thought about every single one of those words. And while excellence is in there, because we want athletes to be able to succeed at the highest levels at which they want to compete, those things can't be possible unless we're also finding ways to develop them outside the sport and then ensuring always that they are safe and healthy. And so that's something that hasn't always been prized and paid attention to that we're focusing on now. And how is that, you know, you're, you probably, I guess you, you would have come in right before getting geared up for 2020 Olympics. And now thinking Mm -hmm. about 21 Olympics, has that changed materially the way that USA gymnastics plays its role leading up to sort of the sports biggest event? It's so interesting because I think when the pandemic happened last year, we were all just kind of shell-shocked a little bit about what that did to the organization, to events, um, to what's important. And so in some ways, it was really beneficial because we were able to take time to kind of take stock of where we were as an organization, what we wanted to focus on, what we were going to prioritize. And so in that way, it allowed us to kind of come together as a group and look at those things. From a training perspective, right, this is a very hard sport. Training is really intense. And so a lot of athletes were kind of forced to take a break. And in some ways, we're showing that that was even beneficial for some athletes who could heal injuries or just get over the mental hurdle of knowing that they can take some time off and be okay. So I think it changes things a little bit. But I still, as we come into 2021, all those pressures that are part of building up to the Olympics are still there. I think people just have a different perspective because of what happened last year. And that's not unique to gymnastics or any other sport. I think a lot of people are walking into this year with a new perspective. Sure. I would imagine that for a lot of people whose lives are gymnastics and they've spent much of their lives training for the Olympics, just uh, like I was uh, talking to Jill about with rugby, I would imagine that's that's a pretty tough deal to get that goalpost move, so to speak. Is that something that you've seen a lot of? It is really hard, I think, especially for something as specific and kind of incremental improvement focused as gymnastics is for Jill. And I know that she talked about this, right? I'm sure she said this because she said it to me before, but it has to be about the journey. It has to be about the process of getting there. It can't be about just getting like at the actual getting to the Olympics, or you're going to be pretty bummed out if it doesn't happen. And I remember right after she first moved to San Diego, it was just before the 2012 games. And there was a BMX rider who had been training for years to make that team and didn't get it at the last minute. And it was such a stark reality of like, oh my gosh, you could give your whole life to training for this moment and then it not happen. So it has to be about something other than getting there. I can't say that I know how they feel because I've never been at that level and I've never seen the goalpost move, but I've certainly seen it. And of course with Jill, the goalpost wasn't moved, but 
she was sidelined pretty dramatically. So I've had some experience with watching it happen. How does the business of gymnastics and specifically USA Gymnastics get affected for something like the Olympics moving, if at all? Well, I think there's two questions in there. So one is how did the pandemic affect gymnastics? And I would say that there's still a really strong sport, right? So there's a lot of people in the sport. There's a really strong community and they're resilient. Like the people in the sport are so passionate about it. And so they figured out how to train over Zoom and how to have competitions virtually and to do all these kind of things that you would never expect. But all that being said, it still, of course, had a lot of impacts to the entire community emotionally and financially. There are gyms in some states that still aren't open or can't be open because of the results of the pandemic. So while there is this kind of strong resilience in the community, I don't want to take away from the fact that some people have been really dramatically impacted. And so a lot of what we shifted our operations on last year was if we weren't going to be putting on events and preparing for the Olympics, we kind of did a strong left turn and looked towards like, how can we help the community in these moments? What information can we put out? What of our services can we provide that can be used in a new way to help people in this environment? So it was really a change of business operations, which again, we're not alone in that. So many businesses had to do that, but we did as well. And it seems like, I mean, USA Gymnastics has always been a a super prominent part of the Olympic community in the US or, or has been for certainly my lifetime. But it seems like more recently, social media has really given a platform for the sport's most successful athletes to be able to speak out, to be able to share their points of view. And I think that's been on display quite a bit with sort of recent court proceedings and everything else. How does that get incorporated into into your job as far as, you know, communications and marketing goes? And and what's that like coexisting with these athletes that in some cases are global brands potentially themselves? How do you guys think about that? And what's that what's that relationship like? That's a great question. And I would say on a personal note, like I just think about it first from a human perspective, like, yes, they're brands and we're a brand and some of them might be pro now or or doing whatever. And then, of course, we have the organization's future to think of. But at the end of the day, we're all humans. And the situation that happened with, with USA Gymnastics in the past is that is something that we don't want to get over and move past, right? That's something that we need to constantly have in our minds as something we're learning from. There were an incredible amount of women and girls who were so brave in coming forward and organizational lessons have to be continued in everything we do. And so when they're using their platform to talk about them, again, even if it's critical of us, I think that's a good thing because I think that helps us keep our mission front and center of like our mission is about keeping athletes safe and providing them a platform to compete at the highest levels in the safest way that they can. And so first, I think it's a good thing. On the other hand, is it complex from a communications perspective? Yes, it's absolutely complex because we are both trying to show and and authentically change what we're doing and be a new organization. So we it's, that's hard to do in this environment. And that's again, that's just part of what the job is now. That's part of what we have to do. We don't want to move past things quickly. We want to learn everything we can about what's happened. It's interesting because I think you have a law background. You uh, went to the greatest uh, university in the world, uh, USC, and then Gibson Dunn, and then to Vail Resorts. And I know at Vail Resorts, you you came in there as a as a lawyer uh, and part of the general counsel's office, and you mm-hmm. came up ultimately, you know, running the communications department. But I would imagine for a big resort company who's elevating one of their people with a legal background and focusing on communications, it's very much about, and particularly I know, you know, you focused on uh, for a long time mountain operations and and limiting liability for the resort there. I would imagine that approach to communications is very different from the one that you just described in which you're saying, hey, we're not trying to get over these things. We're not trying to to sweep them under the rug. We're trying to make sure that they they stay talked about because they're important subjects. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, with my background, even starting at Gibson, you know, kind of in real estate finance and a little bit in land use, that was definitely, it was a learning experience. Gibson was an awesome place to work, great lawyers, but it definitely wasn't, I knew it wasn't going to be my forever home as far as I didn't want to spend the rest of my time doing deals. Not because that's not valuable. It's just not where I felt the most aligned. 
And so when I started working on a deal that Bell Resorts was doing as a client, so they were a client of Gibson Dunn's and they were buying a, a resort in California. So I got to be California real estate counsel on that deal. And I got to come in house at the end of that a year later. And we can, I love talking about that transition at some point, but that was a big change. But I immediately felt that the relationship building, the kind of liaison role that in-house counsel provides was much more my skill set translating between outside experts and our internal operational folks, that was a sweet spot for me. And I loved it. I love that. That is a communications effort in itself. And so when I got to be chief of staff for the CEO there and working on different things, communications in all forms. So not, I guess I wouldn't say big C communications, like the formal functional role, but communication, little C in all forms just became so important with investors, with the board, with employees, with our marketing communications, like all of it is so relevant and important. And I loved it because the change of one word can make the biggest difference. And I sometimes find that out the very, very hard way, but that's, I think it's also a brilliant challenge to kind of keep attacking that and finding out how can we say authentically what we're feeling as an organization? How do we find the the kind of collective pulse and how do we translate that externally? And I think that's true regardless of the constituents that you're talking to or the channel that you're pushing it out in, that's really the goal of communications, whether you're speaking to one person or giving a speech or putting out a commercial. And so would you say that that's actually maybe more similar than I'd give it credit for between the two organizations? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I do think that's true. At least the way I like to do communications, which is really, and I'm not saying I always get it right for sure, but I think that that's what we're trying to do. And here's why I think communications and marketing used to be about creating a brand or a facade and then, and then pushing that. And that, so your communications, particularly marketing communications might look totally different than kind of what's behind the curtain. Today's consumers are too smart for that. Like there is too much interconnectedness. There's too much in social media. There's, there's too much readily available all over the internet for people not to be able to call bullshit if they don't believe you. And so they are leading with values. They want to know that your values and their values align. And so the time where you could like stay out of a conversation as an organization or not show your values and just try to put out a good product, I think that's, it's on the way out, if not gone. And so when you're at a nonprofit or a sports organization, that is even more front and center because you're mission driven anyway. But that's where we have to get to is authentically communicating our values and making sure that the actions we're taking align with those values. Because that is what we need to communicate. That's what will lead to trust or in the consumer world, right? Brand loyalty. It's no longer about like creating something that fool people into believing. And thank God, or I wouldn't be in it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm really interested by this idea of where some systems can be improved by volatility, just the way, you know, human beings can, might be able to use, you know, pain or tragedy as a catalyst for growth. When you look at USA Gymnastics and everything they've been through, how do you think about them coming, the organization coming out stronger and more evolved on the other side? That's a great question. It remains to be seen. Yeah. And I say that because I think that there's like, we are still in it, right? And as much as there is kind of public discourse going on and there are things that are contentious, I think that there's At the end of the day, a lot of the folks involved want the same thing. They want a safe sport. They want a culture where athlete well-being is not only taken into consideration, but is the priority. So the, the goal is very similar for a lot of constituencies across the community. And until we get there, I don't know that we can say that we came out stronger. I know that we're doing a lot to try to get there, but respectfully and humbly, we we still have progress to make. And so it's hard to say that. I hope that's the case. But I also, you know, wish in my heart of hearts that that kind of transformation could have happened without the amount of harm that was done. Well, it's an incredible project to be jumping into and, and managing. So you know, certainly my, my hat's off to you there, but it's not, uh, it seems like some cases your your career would suggest it's what you like to do, right? Jump in from Gibson Dunn to Vail Resorts. And how do you think about when it feels right to go jump into something new. What's that transition been like for you now? And what was that transition from being a lawyer to going in-house like for you at Vail? Sometimes, you know, I get the question, particularly from young lawyers, well, you're not a lawyer anymore, so you must have not liked it. And that's, 
it couldn't be more false <laughs> because I think for me, the transitions in my career have always been about like, what's the next right thing? What feels more aligned with who I am today? And we're always changing. So the idea that you could just pick at 18 or 22 or 25, exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life has always seemed a little bit ludicrous to me that that like somehow you would know that forever. And so my transitions have always been about like, this seems like the next right step for me. This seems more aligned with where I am, what I'm interested in now, what I want to do. So going in house was a piece of that. It was definitely a gigantic financial change. It was a skill set change. You know, I went from being the kind of like third year lawyer locked in my office to, to being like the person who hires partners from law firms. It was very, very weird for me to make that transition, but definitely a different skill set that was more aligned with ultimately what I wanted to be doing, which was relationship building, translating, helping people understand the legal world, which is unnecessarily opaque and full of jargon, if you ask me. So um, being in-house kind of allowed me to do that a little bit and break it down and, and make it clear that this is not, it doesn't need to be this hard. And so I love that role. And I, and I did it for, I did in-house uh, law for five years. And then I, and I loved every bit of that. I have some amazing mentors, both on the business and legal side, um, particularly from Vail Resorts. But then I got the chance to be the CEO's chief of staff. And to anybody who ever gets that opportunity to work for a CEO in that way, I would say with a thousand percent certainty that you should take that because I think that was kind of the, the biggest cracking open of my career that I could have ever asked for. Say more about that. What about it allowed you to do that? What'd you love about it? I worked for Rob Katz, who's the CEO of Bell Resorts and um, has been for, for many years now. And I really got to be, I was the first chief of staff and it started out as the director of executive projects. And all I really knew, that was the title of the role. All I really knew was that I was going to be working with Rob basically all the time. I was going to go to all of his meetings, except for his one-on-ones with his executive team. And other than that, I didn't know exactly what I'd be doing because I was the first person in the role. And it was such an education. And so it was an education in all the functional areas. And that's probably what I should talk about. But you know, learning more about finance or marketing or how they interact or, you know, speaking all these different languages. And while that allows for a certain amount of kind of business savvy, the education was actually in leadership and being able to talk with Rob all the time, probably to the point where I annoyed him a great deal about my own development, other people's development, interpersonal dynamics, things that really I find fascinating and have such an impact on the business world. And he never acted or said or thought that those things weren't important. In fact, the opposite. Like, I think he was well aware and taught me how important interpersonal dynamics and leadership are to, to building a great company. And so that was the real education for me was learning from somebody in that position about how to be a coach, how to be a leader, how to make big strategic decisions while still keeping your heart and intuition and gut involved. And so I can't say enough good things about that. And then I got to, I got to work in a lot of different areas, right? Whenever there was a gap to be plugged, I got to kind of jump in and work on that gap and took a lot of the fear out of it for me after a while. I just got used to starting in new things that I knew nothing about. So um, got to build confidence in new areas. And I know that that's probably the transferable skill, but again, the, the one that really stuck with me is, is on the leadership side. So what were some of the biggest leadership lessons that you learned in that role that you take into your current one? So I would say for me, and I will, I'll never forget this because it was one of the first conversations I had working for Rob, but I had a 360 review, right? Where they ask all these different groups of people what they think about you and your work. And there were two things and that this is like two weeks into working for Rob, but there were two things that he said that have stuck with me and they seemed important at the time, but they seem even more important five years later. And the first one was, he, he made a point of saying, well, everybody gave such thoughtful feedback. And I was like, yeah, didn't they? And he said, well, except for you, because <laughs> I had to do a self-review in there. And I kind of laughed and I said, yeah, but like, it's a review. Like, who cares what I think? Don't we, isn't this like the, the idea is to find out what everybody else thinks. And he said, but don't you think what you think is actually the most important? I totally blew it off because I'm, I'm the person who wants a gold star and an A plus. And so all I really cared about was like what people above me thought at the time. But I, that has sat with me so much. And I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out that piece, like whether somebody else thinks I'm doing well or not, or I get a, a high five or a gold star or criticism or whatever. What do I think? And, you know, being the chief of staff, that became really important because 
with the 10 members of the executive team, I'm never going to please all of them, right? There's going to be people who like what I'm doing and people who don't like what I'm doing. And sometimes I'm going to make everybody mad. And so I had to unhook myself from the praise or people pleasing being success and instead figure out like, what do I, do I actually believe I'm doing the right work in the right way? And so that was, that was a huge piece of it. And then the other piece was in choosing where I wanted to give feedback. I was a little bit selective. I left some people out, you know, and, uh, and he called me on that. And I said, kind of candidly, like, well, I don't want to include certain people because I don't know that I really care about their feedback. Like, this person hasn't known me that long. I don't really love working with this person. So I don't want their feedback. And he said, Oh, that's because you're thinking about feedback as, and I, I'm paraphrasing. These are definitely not his words, but the point he got across to me was feedback isn't true or false. It's just a data point. So if you think about feedback as being true or false, you get all caught up in being defensive or negating it when in reality, it's just a data point. So you might be really passionate and somebody might love that and it might energize them. And to somebody else, it might be intimidating. So it's not true or false. It's just a data point. And by knowing those data points, you can be more strategic in how you interact with people because you'll be better understanding of your impact on them. And so those two things have like stuck with me in every single environment and helped me get over both my need to get a gold star on something and my need to be defensive if I'm getting some critical feedback which is a lifelong skill that I haven't mastered yet, but I'm working on. Absolutely. I love both of those. Those are awesome. On the thinking about your own perspective uh, and your own feedback uh, and your thoughts about, you know, how you're going about doing something, you mentioned sort of pausing and, and thinking about how do I feel about the way I'm, I'm doing something? How do you do that? So I think that's, you know, that can be a challenge mm-hmm. sometimes to be a self-aware enough to to pause and think about that, but then B, actually come to terms with, I feel, I feel good about this, or I don't feel good about this. And here's why. That's such a great question. That awareness, I think comes from a couple different places. Sometimes we externalize that. So we're like, is this what other people think I should be doing? So we start asking people like, do you think this was right? And it's really hard when we take that away and just say like, okay, what do I think? And first you have to, I think you have to give up the idea that there's any one right way to do something because we all have different core values and kind of pillars by which we live our lives. So for me, that question, whether I think I'm doing it right is, is this action, is this behavior, is this routine aligned with my core values and the ones I'm consciously choosing, not the ones I just think are right for this moment. And so I will bump everything up against that. And then once I've gotten there, then the next question is like, okay, what's the impact I'm having on people? And is that the impact I'm intending to have on people? And how could I shift that? So like, even if it's aligned with my values, so for example, say I gave somebody really harsh feedback, but one of my values, one of my core values is authenticity or honesty. And I say, well, that's really aligned with that. Like, I know that was hard feedback to hear, but I, I really wanted to be authentic and honest in that moment. And I was. Well, that might be true, but I still have that nagging feeling. And you can usually tell what you think about yourself by something in your body, some feeling in your chest, in your gut, in your tapping of your fingers that is telling you something's off or misaligned. And so for me, I listen to that. I'm like, okay, even this is aligned with my core values, something's not sitting with me. So maybe it's an impact. Maybe it's like, okay, well, that person left in tears. So even if I was kind of living up to my values, I'm not doing it in the way that was having the impact I intended to have because I've now really upset somebody. So figuring out how I think I'm doing is, is it aligned with my values? And am I having the impact I'm intending to have? I love that. Have you evolved into that? Because I would imagine as someone who's a high achiever, you've put a lot of stress on yourself to, to achieve certain things. How do you walk away from any situation satisfied with I'm doing enough, I'm executing in the right way. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm showing up every day the way I want to. So that is never easy. That is like a lifelong battle to figure that out. But at some point I realized that I was, everything was getting a gold star, right? Like I wanted an A plus, I was valedictorian in my high school. I wanted to be first in my class. I was not first in my law school class. At some point you just pause and say, but why? And now for some people, it's just really healthy striving for excellence. And so one thing from the outside that's really hard to tell is what is kind of perfectionism, which is that hustle for self-worth, right? Like trying so hard to get external validation, And what is just excellence, which is striving to improve and keep 
growing and developing. And for me, the outside actions might not look that different, but I really had to switch from moving from my self-worth is caught up in getting that gold star to, no, I strive for excellence. I try to improve, but I am worthy and whole and deserving of love and everything in the world, even if I don't get the gold star, even if I'm not valedictorian. And so that becomes that practice of kind of worthiness and self-compassion is something that for me was an evolution for sure. And it took some messing up, honestly, it took some messing up and showing myself compassion in those moments to get to a place where I felt more confident saying my worth is not in what I achieve. And, you know, for a lot of people and a lot of times I heard like, okay, when you make mistakes, you can't make that about you. You can't make that you are your mistakes. You have to move on. For me, I've made plenty of mistakes, but I kind of always intrinsically knew that I wasn't just my mistakes. I had to get to a point where I also intrinsically knew that I wasn't my achievements either. That I was a whole human, even if I didn't do anything that was externally validated with a certificate or award or degree or whatever. And that was definitely an evolution for me. One of the reasons I ask you that is because in my discussion with Jill, she really credits you with helping her sort of attain a certain level of self-compassion in particular, as she was getting through chemo, coming back to rugby training to go to the Olympics. And she mentions a, a time where she got back to running, you were running with her and she was just incredibly distraught about the shape she was in, how slow she was running and how that was a, a sort of a turning point in which you helped coach her through that, that self-compassion sort of thinking. But I think it can be to your point, very difficult for for anyone who's who's highly motivated. It's amazing. Jill is such an achiever in so many ways. She's just like her natural push towards excellence is, is insanity. In fact, she asked me one time, I don't know if she talked about this, but when we first started dating, she was actually coming back from a from a neck break. This is pre-cancer. And she kind of said like, like, hey, like, you know, because we were both into rugby and she was really good. And she kind of said like, would you still want to date if I wasn't, if I didn't do rugby? And I was like, like a thousand percent. Yes. But the reason for that is because what makes her good at rugby is what makes her good at anything that she wants to do. She has this incredible drive and passion for whatever she gets interested in. And that could be, you know, rugby, it could be coffee, it could be diversity and inclusion, like whatever it is that she becomes passionate about. It's infectious. And I love that. That's what's attractive. Not that you're like good at a sport. Right. So I love that about her. And, but for her to be so good at something and then have this momentary piece where she's not, it like kind of blew my mind. And so I'm glad that she, that I had that impact on her at that moment. And candidly, I had to give myself compassion too, because a week later she was kicking my ass. Like she was, <laughs> you know, like I, that, that lasted for like a very short amount of time. And I always knew that she would get back there, but yeah, she's just incredibly driven. And so her being able to see the growth that she's had up into a certain point and that, you know, she'll still have is, is a good reminder for her. So you guys are are both such driven ladies and you both have accomplished so much. And I think it's so cool that you you guys have a, a partnership where clearly you've you've really, really supported each other through your different career moves, whether it's her, you know, living at the Olympic Training Center, you moving to to take this role USA gymnastics and everything in between. How do you guys balance that as a as a life partnership where you guys are both driven, clearly very focused on on your respective careers, but at the same time, it, it would seem like very, very supportive of each other? I think from the get-go, actually from like a year in of dating, we knew that Jill was going to be trying to make trying to make the Olympics. And so that was going to be a, a large focus for her in the next few years. And I had just moved to Bell Resorts. I had just gone in house. And so, and actually left California, moved to Denver as Jill was moving from Denver to San Diego. So it was a little bit backwards, but, but I think for me, it was always like, we were both really driven. And so it was kind of like a showing each other the support that we would want for ourselves. Right. Because I actually don't know how Jill feels about this, but I've always felt that like you know, life is not linear. It's not, you do this and then you do this and then you do this and everything's perfect. It was like, oh, this is the next, you know, this is the next thing for me. Like we got engaged when we didn't even live together, right? We were living apart and that was what made sense for us then. And I've never really been, as much as I like my my gold stars, I've never really been or felt pressured to live a specific life. And so 
doing different things or changing roles or moving states or any of those things have always been like, yeah, what's the next right thing for me? And part of that equation is what's the next right thing for us. And so that question has to be part of it. And of course, now we have a little guy. And so what's the next right thing for him? It gets more complicated because you're adding more people to the mix, but that's just always part of the question, right? And I think by doing that and supporting each other in that way, we're both allowed to keep growing. There's no like fixed, well, this is who you married. So that's who you're going to get for the next (laughs) five decades, right? Because like that would be, you know, the idea is that we support each other's growth, not that we stay the same exact people that we were. And listen, we don't always get it right either, but I think that we both want to get it right and that we're both really trying to look at the long game and not, you know, just the next little bit of time. How much has Jill's experience with cancer and then your own affected that point of view? I mean, you guys got married and then uh, what, less than a year in, Jill got her cancer diagnosis, right? So, yeah, it was actually like three days before our first anniversary, which is kind of crazy. It was nuts. I think it's hard to not, to have that not affect you in that way. My mom actually got cancer a few years before that. And it was a pretty bad diagnosis. She's still alive and and doing great, but it was a, it was a bad prognosis at the time. And that rocked me getting into the cancer world at all and trying to understand it and all these different prognostic factors and all that stuff. And so I felt a little more knowledgeable by the time that Jill got sick, just about cancer and what we had to do. And, And my whole family's in the medical field in some capacity. So I had a lot of support on that side. But I think you're just, you cannot help but be acutely aware that life is not a given. And so I, again, like, I think that was always pretty front and center for me that that was the case. And even my dad, he had a kidney transplant when I was a kid and had had complete kidney failure. And he used to always say to me, like, life is not a dress rehearsal. So it was kind of like, this is not, this is not like your first go around and then you get to do it again. So whatever it is, whether it's where you live or who you marry or the job you have, like, do it now because there isn't a second chance. And it sounds like such a cliche when I say it, but it's, it's really true. Why would you live according to anybody else's compass if you don't get to do it again? I think there's another, what mantra, I guess, that, that Jill shared that I think comes maybe from your dad, if I recall correctly, but Mm -hmm. uh, when things are at the worst, at their worst, Mm -hmm. you have to be at your best. Yeah, that's definitely a, a Joeism. My dad, that's, um, that's from my dad for sure. I think one, one of the things that I appreciate so much about, he's been a huge influence in my life. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about him is that he doesn't shy away from things being really hard, right? Like when they're really hard, he doesn't actually I mean he makes it better by being him, but he doesn't act like it's okay. And especially having been a doctor and seeing people go through really hard things, he just acknowledges that sometimes things really suck and he doesn't sugarcoat that. And I I kind of appreciate that. There's like a security in that, knowing that somebody's not just trying to get out of the discomfort of hard feelings, right? Where sometimes you talk to people when you're feeling down or something's hard and you can tell they just want you to feel better because they're uncomfortable. Yeah. And he's not like that. And he said that to me when when Jill first got sick and I was pretty distraught. And and it at the at the time it kind of felt shitty. Like it felt a little bit like, well, thanks, Dad. Like I'm gonna go cry in the corner. I appreciate the pep talk. But it's actually true. And then eventually, in some weird way, like, again, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but in some weird way, it becomes a privilege. It's like yeah. a lot of people go through life and don't have those kinds of things happen. And, and they're, that's lucky for them. But also, it's lucky for me that a year into our marriage, I got to show Jill that I'll be here and that we'll do this together. And that you think that in sickness and in health part, the sickness is going to be a long time later. And sometimes it's a year later. Yeah. What a privilege it is to get to show that that early in our marriage. Yeah, there's a great letter from I think it's Seneca to his to his mother, but who's distraught because he's been banished, and he says, you know, what's the point of all of our suffering if we haven't learned how to be wretched? Which uh, <laughs> you know sounds sounds colorful, but I think that's it's so true. It's like those those tough times give us that opportunity to to step up and live live the way that that we want to live in the in the hardest of times. Yeah, exactly. The point of living is not to not feel those things and not to get super philosophical, but when you, right, when you numb those things, like if you try to not have bad stuff happen or you try to not be sad about it, like if you numb those feelings, then you then numb all the joy and the, you know, life sustaining happy emotions too. You don't get to just selectively numb shitty emotions. And so 
the point isn't to not feel those things. It's to feel everything. And so trying to be aware of the feelings enough to feel them is it's not easy, especially when it's really hard, but then you can also feel the joy. And I will say like, even in the hardest of times, there were incredible moments of joy. And even in times where it seems like everything looks really great on the outside, there were incredible moments of hardship too. So it's not, you can't always see that from the outside, but it's always kind of 50, 50 in real life. Absolutely. A great mentor of mine shared something like that with me when my sister died and I told him I was capable of feeling pain like this. It never occurred to me like that pain like this existed, but he said, well, you know, the corollary to that is there's, there's joy that you didn't know that you could feel as well. Mm. You know? So I think there's a lot of truth to, to what you're saying. Yeah. How powerful is that? That's incredible. Yeah. How do you go about doing your, your job at a high level when your spouse is going through what Jill was going through? The first time it happened, which is probably the most jarring emotionally, because you're just not sure what to expect. You don't know what the prognosis is going to be all that. I was in house counsel. So I did not, the people I supported were at the mountains. And so for a while, people didn't know I, because I was just working from Jill's hospital room. Her, her chemo was inpatient. So we would just spend like five days in the hospital. So a lot of my kind of internal clients, put that in air quotes, didn't know that I was, that that was going on. And then I remember one of the times that I had to tell somebody was because I had a call scheduled and I was going to go in the hallway at the hospital and take this call. And like about five seconds before the call was supposed to start, Joe got really sick Mm -hmm. and I had to cancel at the last minute. And you can imagine, you know, at the time being a more junior attorney in an in-house department, that was not a very professional move to cancel that quickly. And so I had to tell the COO that she's actually now the the COO at at Bale Mountain, Beth Howard, who was incredibly understanding and awesome about it. But I had to start telling people. And I think there was a little bit for me of respite and keeping them separate and not telling everybody right away what was happening because it allowed my emotional brain to take a break and just focus on work. And and as as much as eventually I needed to tell people because I needed the support, I also enjoyed having that space where my brain was not focused on the what ifs of cancer, which can be debilitating. And so in some ways, I was really grateful that I needed to continue working through that. And the second time I was chief of staff, and that was different because I couldn't just do my job from anywhere. All those interpersonal dynamics and the, and the questions you're asking and the things you're keeping track of, that's really hard to do via a phone call or at the time we weren't using Zoom like we are today. So it was a lot different trying to do that. So it was much harder for me to do my job and I missed stuff. And I think at the time I was, I don't know if mad's the right word, but I was a little disappointed because there was something in me that wanted Rob to say like, it's okay, you can do your job just as well, even with this going on. And I guess much like my dad, not sugarcoating stuff, he didn't say that. He said like, yeah, of course this takes away from what you're trying to do here. And like how much that happens like how much you're away or how much you're here, that has to be your decision. And again, at the time, I was kind of annoyed with him about that. Like, why don't you just tell me you can be at the hospital in the afternoon, but I need you here in the morning meetings or you have to be here Monday through Wednesday, you know, but he didn't, he kind of made me choose that. And I think that in retrospect, that was such a great lesson in setting my own boundaries and determining my own needs first. And then I can bump them up against what other people need and and figure out if we need a compromise, but starting with asking myself, what do I need in this situation? So work was a lot different in that capacity from the first to the second time. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You talk about having a bit of a respite from what you're dealing with personally versus having to deal with it professionally for a period of time, because there's a certain amount of support that you get, but then at the same time, there's a certain amount of allowing people to support you, right? Or thinking about like, what's the best way am I going to say this? How am I going to respond to other people reacting in certain ways? I mean, there's there's real emotional energy to to sharing that kind of thing with people, especially in a professional environment. Yeah, absolutely. And it people want you to share, right? Vulnerability builds trust in that yeah. situation. There, And sometimes you don't want to be vulnerable, right? So one thing I learned is that like, Instead, when other people are going through things and I still have to do this, like I have to check myself on this instead of saying like, hey, how are you doing? Which requires a response. Just saying like, hey, I'm thinking about you. I love you. I hope you're okay. I'm supporting you through this. No response needed because you get exhausted and you feel the need to emotionally um, build up other people like, oh, I'm okay. Or don't worry about me or whatever. And that in itself can be exhausting. So 
um, now when somebody's going through something hard, instead of asking them for a response of any sort, if all I'm really trying to say is I'm thinking about you and I'm here for you, then that's what I say. Yeah. And if they want to elaborate and tell me how they're doing or tell me about the details, then they can. But that's, that's one thing that people will do out of a, a wealth of good intentions is they'll say like, Oh, well, how did they'll try to get in the details and say like, what did this test come back as? And what's the next step for treatment? And if you're the, the person who is trying to take care of the person involved, that is exhausting to keep repeating that. And actually not just repeating it, but to come up with the emotions again, right? So talking about those things and what's happening next is truly brings it all up all over again. And that's not the point. People don't actually want to know what the pathology said or how the surgery went. What they want you to know is that they're thinking about you and that they care about you and they want to be involved. And so just say that instead of trying to get all the all the latest details on something that really isn't important. It's such an interesting nuance point and it's a perfect example of something that you can really only gain that awareness by having gone through something really hard and knowing mm-hmm. and standing in those shoes right because otherwise mm-hmm. it's very difficult to know that intuitively i think you know maybe yeah. if you're just naturally super super empathetic like you can grasp something like that but i think for the most part yes that's one of those things that you just have to live it and then that's a gift that you can give to to others that are going through that Yes, 100%. And it's funny because there's, I don't know where the line is because everybody's burden or grief is so different, but sometimes you just get it on certain aspects. You know, I think something I've never really talked that much publicly about before, but I think this is relevant because it's very similar in this situation. Like I, I dealt with an eating disorder in high school and at the, at the end of my high school, my, my senior year, and I had a really hard time with that and I didn't talk about it for a very long time. But there are things that I understand now when talking to other people who've been there that I don't think you can understand unless you've battled that particular demon. It's different for everybody. The, the, the reasons behind it, the control aspects, all those things are different for everybody. But it's a very relatable experience to people who've been through something similar. And so it's the same thing in the sense of like, it's so variable from one person to the next, what it felt like, the reasons for it. But when you do have that understanding, you know where some of these landmines are and kind of what to avoid when you're trying to be empathic towards somebody going through it. I'd love to switch gears a moment and ask, Sure. what was it like to be there to watch Jill step on the field in Rio mm-hmm. after the chemotherapy and the broken neck and everything else that uh, you'd watch her go through as her spouse? Oh my gosh. Physically, it was just like the biggest release ever. I remember her running out into the field and then I just cried. I just like cried and I didn't care what happened after that. I didn't care if they lost every game. I didn't care if we had to fly home the next day. I just, it was like, there, she's there. She did it. She's an Olympian. And I remember that because I remember accidentally calling her an Olympian before she got there. And she corrected me that you're not an Olympian until you actually get on the field of play at the Olympics. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, Olympic hopeful is what you're called up until that point. And so that was it. I was like, there she is. She's an Olympian. And so that was, it was a huge release. It was also for me, the power of like, not to get super woo woo on you, but the power of manifesting a reality. Like when Jill first got sick and we knew she was going to have this big surgery and radiation to her jaw and neck and tons of chemo, you know, Jill was saying like, she might get back to the Olympics and I don't know if she shared this with you, but there were a lot of people in our lives who loved Jill very much and believe in her who were like, is anybody going to tell her that's not going to happen? Somebody should probably tell her that. And then everybody was like, no, you know, this is what's keeping her hopeful. It's what's keeping her fighting. And so we were like, okay, we'll just, we'll take one day as, as it comes. And eventually maybe we'll, she'll realize that that's a very long shot at best. And the thing about Jill is that she was never delusional really, right? She was never like, I mean, it seemed that way, but she wasn't. She's just like, she has big goals and she doesn't stop herself from getting them. Like if something's going to get in her way, then that thing's going to get in her way. She's not going to get in her own way. And so even when she would be in the hospital for like five or six days at a time, she would do yoga just to make sure she stayed mobile so that when she did get back, she would be as, as mobile and injury free as possible. And you're like, okay, like yoga's good. So I'm not going to tell her you shouldn't need to do this. Or she would walk like a mile and a half around the hospital. And when you're comparing a mile and a half walk with a IV pole to like the insane conditioning that they do on the team, most people can't, 
they don't have the long distance vision to see those. And I don't have the vision to see that, but Jill does. And it's one of the things that is so unique about her and she had that vision. So to see that come true and to see her go out on that field, I not only felt like Jill can do whatever she sets her mind to, but then it makes you feel like you can too. I'm like, oh, and I'm less self-conscious about putting big goals out there because I'm like, like Jill did it. And then she did this, right? Let everybody tell you, you can't do it and then go do it. And even if you don't, it's not actually about you or your worthiness. It's just because that's how circumstances turned out to be. And so it's really cool to see that and how inspirational that was for a lot of people, but for me, especially. And I know that you've, you've become really passionate about coaching people in your free time. Mm -hmm. I guess how much of your, your personal background with sports, your, your experience, you know, being Jill's partner, your career progression, how does that all play into your, your passion for, for coaching now? And I, and I, I believe your coaching focus is really on, on sort of the professional sphere and women in particular. Yeah. How does that all feed into, into that passion? Thanks. It is something, obviously, when I was talking about working with Rob, like that, those lessons stuck with me and I I wanted to be that kind of leader for other people. Right. So Rob never took the easy route of just telling me what to do. He always made me work through those things on my own. And he talked me through it and he coached me through it, but he, he never just said like, go do X, Y, and Z in that way. And the growth you have when you work with somebody like that is really incredible. And so when I went from having zero or one direct report to having a team of more than 25 people, I really thought I've got to learn some other skills. Like I've got to learn more leadership skills than the ones I had. And so I decided to to take a coach training program, which was about a year long for me um, and pretty intensive work on knowing what it is to be a professional coach and to have this skill set to help people work through whatever it is that they're stuck on. And it really came out of, to be honest, a place of insecurity at the beginning. I just wanted to be a better leader. And I thought that this would help me. What I didn't realize is the internal change that that would force for me. Like having to do all that work to build this skill set forces you to do all this stuff to look inward. And I love that. And it was such a gift. I realized through that process that I actually don't know if I ever really listened to people before I took that training before I went through that and was forced to act like a coach would act, which is to drop that need to relate and share your own experience and instead just hear people and what they're saying. And so it was really, really powerful for me in a lot of different ways and building skills. And the way that I have wanted to use it the most and the way I am using it the most now is almost working with the kind of person I was, the person I was, you know, five years ago, that kind of emerging professional woman in leadership who is looking for the gold star instead of looking internally for her own validation. And, and I love that because there's so many super successful women who are still feeling like they're missing something or still having a, a crisis over whether they're doing enough or are enough. And I want to help them see that they are enough and they can do anything that they want to do. And that to get that to come from a place of internal drive and not external validation or success. And so I love working on that. And I have felt, honestly, as much as I think coaching helps other people, I think it's a mirror too. You get to see other people's growth and it helps you. So it's been a really great opportunity to use my skills and and this training in a way that I never thought possible. That's so cool. I, I love that it was it's become a strength that really came from a place of insecurity or a sense of lack. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that you kind of tell yourself, right? Those stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves that then become kind of self-limiting narratives. So if you think you're kind of an intense authoritarian leader and, and you're not a great listener, then that's what you'll be, right? So you just fulfill that prophecy by by thinking that story about yourself But when you can let that story go and say, like, actually, maybe I am a really good listener or maybe I am a really great coach or maybe I could be right. You don't even have to, like, do a 180. You could just allow the space to not hold on to the narrative you've had about yourself. That can be incredibly powerful and and life changing. And you can see the range 
and breadth of what you might do instead of being stuck in the story that you've written so far. Yeah. Breaking out of our narratives, it can be, can be so tough, but I've, I've certainly found that, that a good coach is so, so helpful with that in particular. Yeah. And one of the things I love about it is I was worried at first that it was like, if you're the coach, then you have to know something, like you have to know what they should do and then, and then tell them that. And that's a consultant. That's what you hire some expert to come in and tell. If you want somebody to come tell you what to do, hire a consultant. Coaching is a partnership. It is allowing yourself the space to hear yourself talk and to have somebody mirror that back to you in a way that asks the right questions and helps you figure out where to go. It is not directive. It is really collaborative. And that to me was something when I figured that part of it out, that that's what coaching was. It's not that I have to have all the answers and then give them to people somehow then I was like, oh, now I can do this because now it becomes a puzzle that I'm working with somebody to solve, not a knowledge base that I'm supposed to have and magically share with everybody. How has that manifested now? What's your coaching look like today? So I got my certification last year and I run a program with a colleague of mine that also went through the same training that I did that's focused on on professional women mostly. Um, we call it stepping into authenticity, which is really uncovering all these identities and narratives that we have about ourselves, the limiting beliefs we have about ourselves and getting to the core of, of who we are so that we feel more aligned and grounded in how we move on in our lives. And so that's something that we, it's an eight week program and we're in our third round of that. So I love that. I love that opportunity to, to work with women and what is kind of holding them back uh, from what they actually want to achieve. So um, that's probably my biggest contribution in that world right now. And then I have a, a few individuals I work with on the weekends that I just love. And it's, it is a skill set to stay in that space. So for me, it's really important to be able to, to keep that skill set up. And I try to bring in those coaching skills to, to my relationships at work. But one thing that I think is really critically different about a leader coach versus a, a separate coach is that you know, if you're coaching somebody that's a direct report of yours, you have a direct investment in the, in the outcome of whatever they do. So it is really hard to be an independent, non-judgmental third party when whatever they decide to do can impact you, your job, your bottom line. And so while some of the tools, acknowledging and validating feelings, getting them to acknowledge their limiting beliefs, all those things are helpful. It's not coaching in the pure sense because it is really, you're, you, you have a stake in the outcome. You have a dog in that fight. And so coaching people that you don't work with, it has a purity to it where you're able to like truly just be there for them and their goals in a completely non-judgmental kind of non-attached capacity. And that's the, that's the real beauty and goal of coaching anyway. That's cool. Yeah. I think one of the things I've found is in, in taking, I try to take a, you know, a more of a coaching approach to leadership because I, I like you have, have really enjoyed, you know, delving into a lot of these subject matters, but I find that, you know, at some point, quite often, not, not quite often, but at some point with so, certain people that, you know, are working for you and you're also trying to coach, you kind of reach that yeah. conclusion of, you know, I, I want to help this person, but at the same time, it might be becoming apparent that they're not a good culture fit for the organization totally. that you're trying to build. Right. And it's, and you, you want them to be vulnerable. You want them to share, but at yeah. a certain point, there are certain sticking points or, or certain other things that become disruptive to the rest of the system, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have a totally different responsibility yeah. in that situation, right? Um, to the whole organization. And so while there's like a Venn diagram where those things overlap, that is not, that's not like kind of coaching in its purest form. Um, and so when you're, when you're purely coaching, right, there's all sorts of tools and skills that you can learn, but the real goal I think, or the best, the best tool you can have is to be completely present with them and what they're trying to achieve and letting your own stuff go and just listening. And that is really hard to do if you are personally invested in the outcome of whatever it is that they're trying to tackle. And so it is a different situation. That being said, some of the tools are really helpful when you are leading a team or, or especially trying to develop leaders in your organization. It's a really cool area. I think it's, it's in many respects, the future of leadership, I feel like we're seeing such a rise yeah. in people being interested in having coaches and being coaches. And I think more and more great leaders are are coming out as really trying to, to be coaches in their own right. Yeah, I, I think it's an awesome expansion of the field. And again, like I was lucky enough to have a leader who had all these amazing kind of coaching aspects to him. And 
when you experience the growth that you can have when you work with somebody like that. And, and then since then, by the way, I've had plenty of my own coaches. So I have a, a really wonderful coach now that I work with on mindfulness. Any coach, you know, probably has a coach because yeah. they believe in it wholeheartedly. <laughs> and I do, I do. I think it is incredibly helpful or I, or I wouldn't be involved in it. But once you've had that, it's really hard to look back, right? And, and go back to trying to do it all on your own. For sure. I'd love to know how all this helps with the hard stuff moving forward. And in particular, mm-hmm. I know, you know, you had a cancer diagnosis of your own not too long mm-hmm. ago. You obviously watched uh, Jill struggle with that. Do these approaches to life and approaches to work, how do they help you when, when you go through that, that kind of challenge personally? Well, I wouldn't say that I always was good at this. I think, you know, in the last year, the biggest kind of aha for me on a lot of fronts has been being okay with the feeling and not trying to numb it or distract it away. Right. So I'm not just talking about like, usually when we think numbing, we think of like, like abuse, the substance abuse or something, but for me and people like me, numbing can be like busyness, right? Yeah. Just filling your schedule to the brim. It can be excessive exercising <laughs> or whatever. So, so numbing, I think, takes a lot of different forms. And I think for me, a lot of it processing through those things is remembering that it's like life is about feeling all of those things, yeah. feeling fear, feeling anxiety. And instead of trying to talk it away, right, just let it be there for a minute. I'm, I tend to be very like in my head about things and I try to logic it away. And if you do that, there's really no way to come out on the other end when you're dealing with a huge uncertainty like cancer. I spent a lot of time reading studies. I barely understood to figure out exactly what the chances of life and death were. There is no answer, first yeah. of all. And then what my, again, like another dadism, he would always say statistics don't mean anything when applied to one person. Yeah. And so even when I thought I found the answer, like, okay, if this, if this prognostic factor is true and this one isn't, then like there's this percent chance. And my dad was like, this, none of this means anything. (laughs) And so for me, it's allowing myself to get out of my head and instead just feel that fear in my body and acknowledge it and let it be there. Because the irony is that we think by ignoring it or distracting it, we won't feel it. But if you actually pause and let yourself feel it, it becomes a lot easier to move through it. Because all of those feelings are temporary. Feelings are temporary. They don't ever, even if they stick around a long time, they're never there forever. So I think for me, it's just allowing them to happen, the hard ones, especially. And how do you think about that in relation to being a mom now and what you, mm-hmm. what you, you know, teach your son about going through the, the challenging times and feeling all the feelings? All of the things that I have talked about, there is no greater motivator for I'm sorry, it's so hard to talk about Augie like without without tearing up because there is no greater motivator for wanting to find a way to give yourself compassion or to set healthy boundaries. All the things that I feel like have been improvements in my life or developments in my life in the last few years, I could attribute some large percentage of that to what I want for my son. And it's such a great reminder of like whatever you tell them to do pales in comparison to what you actually do. So if I tell my son to love himself and all his imperfections, but I am criticizing myself or grabbing my belly in the mirror or do it and, and talking down to myself, that's what he's going to get. And so all these things that you could spend a lifetime or a good 36 years trying to figure out, like, man, having a kid is like, that is the accelerator for figuring out a lot of those things because what you aren't willing to do for yourself, you can suddenly figure that out when you know the impact it's going to have on your child. So that has been really huge for me. And I, you know, people think you like learn life and then you teach your children life. But I would say it's a thousand percent the opposite for me that like I learned something and then I had a child and I learned twice as much in that time. Um, and, th- and that can come from a lot of life changing activities, but for me, it was, it was him. I can't say enough about that. And on the heart stuff, I would say like, I can deal, I don't even know if I can deal, I can conceive of how hard some of the what ifs could be for me. And I never do the, like, I have never done the like, well, why me? Or why did this happen to us or any of that? Cause I, I don't think it's really productive. And I also don't. I think bad things happen to good people all the time and good things happen to, you know, people who struggle. And I don't even know if I believe in good people and bad people anymore. So anyway, 
I don't think any of that's productive, but it's, it is really hard for me when I think of like trying to protect him, right? I want him to have both his moms forever. And the thought of that not being the case because of one of us being ill or something, it breaks my heart. But I also know that, you know, when I think about Jill and her long-term health, I hope Jill lives until she's a hundred. And if that, if that doesn't happen, he, you know, Augie would be the luckiest to have Jill for the however long he gets to have her. Right. And, and I, I feel the same way. And so you just kind of have to like acknowledge that sad, terrible things happen. And while I hope they don't happen to us, there is a lot of joy and gratitude for what we've already had. So I already feel like the luckiest, even if something really terrible happens in the future. I'm not saying I'm okay with it. I'm just saying that like, it doesn't take away from the joy I feel now. I that was that. very rambly. I'm sorry. No, I, hope no, no. That made sense. I, I love that. And I'm, uh, I'm certainly grateful for, uh, for the friendship and the seeing you guys, uh, doing well and, and, uh, uh navigating your journeys and can't wait to see for you guys. Thanks, Mike. I wish, I wish I could uh, have a crystal ball and know that, but like I said, we're just, we'll just figure out the next right thing no and then we'll one. do that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, Carol, thank you so much for, for joining me in this, uh, little podcast today. I really appreciate you, uh, sharing your story, being vulnerable. If there are, people out there that that might be interested in your coaching services or would otherwise want to reach out what's uh what's the best way to get in contact with you yeah the best way to find me is probably linkedin i have everything there you can see what i care about and what i believe in that's probably my favorite social media platform i guess even i don't even know if you consider it that but it kind of blends both my professional and, and personal life and and all the things i'm passionate about so carol dash fabrizio on linkedin awesome all right well Thank you so much, Carol. I uh, really yeah, appreciate the thanks, time. Mike. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.